Shalom. This is Gary Durashinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. Now, if you have your Bibles, let's look at Ephesians chapter 3 together. Verses 1 to 13. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Messiah Yeshua, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Messiah, which was not made known to men in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit of, to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the good news, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, sharers together in the promise in Messiah Yeshua. I became a servant of this good news by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given to me to proclaim to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Messiah and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was that now, through the body of believers, through his congregation, to manifold wisdom of God, that the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Messiah Yeshua our Lord, In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. This is a very difficult passage, really. It reads nicely, but it's a difficult passage. But it's an interesting one about Paul's ministry among the non-Jewish peoples of the world, among the Gentiles. We thought that back in chapter 2, verses 11 through uh, 22 or so, where he focused on the Gentiles, that he was done with talking about his ministry and work among the Gentile peoples. We thought that he had already concluded what God has been doing among the Gentile world. But now as he begins chapter 3, he goes back to this theme. 
And the interesting thing is, Paul's pattern, if you look at chapter 1, is to speak of the grace of God, what God has been doing in chapter 1, verses 3 to 14. We read about all the blessings that the Lord has bestowed upon us, and we outlined them, and we looked at them. And as a result of reflecting on those blessings, he then uh, goes into a prayer. And so in verse 15, he says, For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith, I've not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And so in verses 15 through 23 of chapter 1, we have one of Paul's prayers. Now as we get to chapter 2, where he speaks about the new life that we have in Messiah, we who have been dead in trespasses and sins now have new life in him. And the Gentiles who were alienated from all the good things that God had in store for the Jewish people were told in verses 11 through 22 of chapter 2 that God has now created a new entity, a new thing, a new man is the word he uses, but he, knew, he means a new element of things. And that new element is that Jews and Gentiles are joined together in one body to proclaim the goodness of the Lord and to manifest the fullness of his blessings. The result of thinking about the fullness of blessings that have been poured out upon the Jews and non-Jews would lead Paul to pray. So in verse chapter 3 verse 1, he begins to introduce his prayer. For this reason, I, Paul, but he gets interrupted as he begins to define himself as the prisoner of Messiah for the sake of you Gentiles. He then is, his thought is moved from his prayer to thinking about the Gentiles again. We know this because if you look at chapter 3, verse 14, that's where Paul picks up his thought from verse 1. So if you look at verse 1, it says, For this reason I, Paul, look at verse 14, I kneel before the Father. That's where the verse should have picked up. Does everyone see that? Because it's kind of a neat thing to take a look at in terms of Paul's literary style and also Paul's heart and mind. It's revealed right here in his writing. He meant to pray. And so he meant to say, For this reason I, Paul, kneel before the Father. But he doesn't. Because when he defines himself, he says, for I, Paul, and now he thinks about himself. Who am I? And he says, I am the prisoner of Messiah for the sake of you Gentiles. That leads Paul to talk once more about the Gentiles for whom he's become a prisoner. Now, when Paul says, I am a prisoner, he means that literally. He's in Rome and he's chained to some Roman guard. And as the Gentile believers are hearing of his condition, his letter to the Ephesians and those in the surrounding communities around Ephesus in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, are reading this letter. Later, he's going to write a letter to the Philippians in the city of Philippi in Europe. Then he's going to write a letter to his good friend Philemon, that Philemon would take back his slave Onesimus. He's going to write to another congregation in Colossae. These four letters are all written during his imprisonment in Rome. And these individuals are thinking about Paul's condition. And perhaps they're thinking, we have been something of the cause for Paul to have been imprisoned in this situation. How did Paul get imprisoned? Well, for that, we have to go into the book of Acts. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 21. 
There's, a, again, a really neat passage that Luke reveals to us in telling us what transpired in the life of Paul. He calls himself a prisoner for the Gentiles. He's speaking very literally. He is in Rome in prison because of his ministry among the Gentile world. And we learn how this came about in the book of Acts. In chapter 20, he finished up his ministry of three years in Ephesus, the, the people to whom this letter is now written particularly. This is the longest amount of time he has ever spent in any one congregation. All the other congregations, he may have spent weeks or months, but in Ephesus, he spent three years. Now, that doesn't sound like a lot of time to me. This, beginning in September, I will have been here at Beth Ariel for three years. And so you think about, what did Paul accomplish in that amount of time? He has a body of believers. He's got a large number of, of believers. He's reached out far and wide to the community around Ephesus. The believers in Ephesus have brought the gospel that Paul has taught them to the surrounding communities. He has established a number of elders. And at the end of chapter 20, he meets with them for the last time on one of the beaches and he meets with the elders, he admonishes them, and he kneels down with them, and he prays with them to carry on the work that God has entrusted to them, the work that Paul had started. Paul then sets sail, and he heads back to the land of Israel. When he gets to the land of Israel, he makes his way up to Jerusalem. When he gets to Jerusalem, we're told in chapter 21, verse 17, that the brothers there received him warmly. They haven't seen him in a long time. They want to learn about the ministry that he's had and the results of his work. He brings with him the offerings that he has been collecting from all the believers throughout Europe and Asia Minor, and he delivers the, this financial gift to the leaders in Jerusalem for them to distribute among the poor Jewish believers in Jerusalem. The Jewish believers in Jerusalem were very poor because they were ostracized for, by their Jewish unbelieving brethren. And they were under a great deal of persecution. We read that earlier in the book of Acts. So much so that many of them left, went north to Antioch of Syria. Paul was sent out by the congregation of believers in Antioch of Syria. But now Paul is in Jerusalem. The monies he's collected, he's giving to the leaders at Jerusalem. They are embracing him warmly, and then they tell Paul about a rumor that has circulated. The rumor that is circulated is that as Paul goes about his ministry among the Gentiles, and indeed among the Jews in Europe and Asia Minor, the rumor is he's telling those Jewish uh, individuals that no longer should they in any way uh, obey the Mosaic law, that they should not in any way be continuing to manifest Jewish traditions and Jewish culture. And so Paul, said, Paul is told that there's a group of believers who have made a vow. And with this vow, they've been waiting for you to hear what you are actually teaching. Paul tells them that he is not teaching the Jews that he's reaching out to, that they should disperse or dispense with their traditions, that they should dispense and stop their cultural manifestation. 
In fact, he enters into the vow with them. He pays for their having their heads shaved. And he indeed has his head shaved as well. And he heads into the temple to make his offering, telling these Jewish believers in Jerusalem that he has not been telling Jews outside the land that they should no longer manifest their Jewish cultural ways or their Jewish traditions. When he gets into the temple, there are some Jewish men there. Look at verse 27. He heads into the temple, and there were some Jewish people there from the province of Asia. Ephesus is in Asia. And they saw Paul at the temple. They recognized Paul from his ministry in Asia and the surrounding communities of Ephesus. And they begin to stir up the crowd. They say, hey, this is the guy who has been bringing this message of Yeshua to our people. This is the one that we need to get. And so he start, they start stirring them up, and the whole crowd seized Paul. They grab him, and they start shouting, Men of Israel, help us. This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against our people, against our law, and against this place. And besides, they said, he brought a Gentile into the temple. Now, the reason they supposed that Paul had brought a Gentile into the temple is because they had this individual and others had seen Paul with Trophimus. Trophimus was a believer, Gentile believer from Ephesus. And Paul had brought him with him to Jerusalem. So they saw Paul and this Gentile together. Perhaps they saw them together on, in the court of the Gentiles. And they began to assume Paul, because he was allegedly teaching that Jews should no longer manifest their Jewish cultural ways, that he must have also permitted and brought this Gentile into the temple as well. But Paul didn't go that far. Even though he said Jews and Gentiles are one in Messiah, he didn't say, well, then Gentile believers, let us in mass go on to the temple and demonstrate that we are accepted by God. Paul recognized the distinctions here and that he ought not to violate the current traditions and what the law specified about Gentile entrance into the temple. He did no such thing. But that's what he was accused of. And a riot breaks out. Look at verse 30. The whole city is aroused. The people come running down from all directions. They're seizing Paul. They're dragging him from the temple. And the gates were shut. They had cornered him. They had captured him. And they were going to kill him, the text says in verse 31. They were trying to kill him. They were beating him up in a corner somewhere where no one could get to him. And now look what happens. While they were trying to kill him, there was a Roman commander of the city of Jerusalem saw that there was a whole uproar. And so he took some officers and soldiers, ran down to the crowd. And when the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. And then in verse 31, we're told the commander came up, arrested Paul, ordered him to be bound with two chains. And then he asked, that is the officer, asked Paul who he was. And some in the crowd began to shout who he was. But in verse 35, when Paul reached the steps to the barracks to which he was being brought, he asked that he could address the crowd. The crowd kept following him and shouting away with him. But as the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks, he asked, may I say something? 
And so he said, do you speak Greek? Aren't you the Egyptian who started a riot and led 4,000 terrorists into the desert? Paul answered, I'm a Jew. I'm not an Egyptian. I'm from Tarsus in Asia Minor in Cilicia, a citizen of no ordinary city. He was one who had received Roman citizenship because of the city he was from. The Roman officer was, was struck by this. The Roman officer is going to say, I had to purchase my Roman citizenship. And you, a Jew, were given it because of the city that you are from. Now the officer is being concerned. He's concerned because this individual is a Roman citizen who's being abused by the citizens of Jerusalem and hasn't had a fair hearing. So Paul says, can I address the crowd? The officer says, you may. And he addresses the crowd in Aramaic. Look at chapter 22. He says, brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. When they heard him speak in Aramaic, they became quiet and they listened. Paul begins to tell them who he is. He says in verse 3, I'm a Jew. I was born in Tarsus, but I was brought up in the city of Jerusalem. I studied under Gamaliel, one of the leading rabbis of the time. He said in verse 4, I had persecuted followers of this way. That is those who followed the way, the truth, and the life, who followed Messiah. They were called a variety of terms, but in chapter 22, we know that the Jewish believers in Israel were referred to as the way, people who followed Messiah, who is the way. And so he said, I was persecuting these followers of Yeshua to their death. I was arresting both men and women, and I threw them into prison as also the high priest and all the council can testify. And I even obtained letters and permission to go up to Damascus to destroy and to kill and to persecute the Jewish people there, the Jewish believers there. But on his way, he tells them in verse 6, I came near Damascus and there was a bright light from heaven. It flashed all around me. And he said, I fell to the ground. I heard a voice, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Paul asks, who are you, Lord? Who is it that speaks to me? It's interesting. He calls him Lord intuitively somewhere deep inside. He knew this was God speaking to him. So he doesn't just say, who are you? But he says, who are you, Lord? And the Lord Messiah responds. And he says, I am Yeshua of Nazareth. And you are persecuting me. It's interesting how Messiah sees the persecution of his followers as the persecution of himself. For we are his body. We are the body of Messiah. He is the head. To persecute the body is to persecute Messiah himself. That's what he says. He says, Paul tells us that his companions saw the light, but they couldn't understand the voice. They heard it like thunder. And the Lord said to Paul, get up, you're to go to Damascus, and look at this, there you will be told all that you've been assigned to do. Notice, God had a plan for Paul. He had an assignment for Paul to fulfill. Paul knew that when he got to Damascus, he would find out from Messiah what Messiah wanted him to do with his life. And so we're told he gets to Damascus, verse 12. He meets a man by the name of Ananias, who was a devout observer, look at this, of the law, highly respected by all the Jews who knew Messiah. 
And in verse 13, he stood beside him. That is Paul, Saul. And he said, Brother Saul, look at this. You know, when you read the text earlier in chapter 9, as Paul relates what, uh, what Luke relates what happened, we find out that Ananias was scared to death to go to Paul. Because he knew Paul was a man who was set to persecute them. Here he sounds really very uh, confident. But in the other passage, he was a little concerned. Should I go to this man? He even says to the Lord, are you sure you got the right man in mind? And Messiah tells him, he's the one I have in mind and he has a great work he needs to do for me. And so Ananias goes and he says, Brother Saul, he embraces him as his brother, though fearful of what he might do to him. He says, receive your sight. At that very moment, he was able to see. And then in verse 14, he's told, the God of our fathers has chosen you. Ananias is telling him to know his will, to see the righteous one, the Messiah of Israel. He saw him in his resurrected, glorified state. That's why he was in a bright light. Like the disciples on the Mount of the Transfiguration, they saw a Messiah in a bright light. Paul sees him in the same way. And he says that you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen. And now what you, why wait? Get up, be immersed, have your sins removed, and call on his name. So Paul says in verse 17, when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying at the temple... He fell into a trance, and he saw the Lord again. And the Lord spoke to him and said, Quick, immediately, leave Jerusalem, because they will not accept your testimony about me. Lord, Paul replied, these men know that I went from one synagogue to another to imprison and beat those who believe in you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there giving my approval, guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. So Paul tells his testimony to the crowd. He tells them, I am a Jew like you. I have not brought a Gentile into the temple, but rather God had met me when I had authorization to persecute the body of believers. And I've come to recognize that Yeshua is the promised Messiah of Israel. I was led to Damascus. My eyes were opened because I was blinded by the brightness of God's light. And the Lord had told me that I had a ministry through Ananias, a particular purpose. And what was that purpose? To be a witness to all men. And more specifically, look at verse 21. I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Now, the moment he mentioned Gentiles, everything was fine up until that point. Everything was quiet. Everyone was listening. They probably were saying, I'm ready to accept Messiah too, until he said this word, Gentiles. And he said, I was sent to the Gentiles far away. Then, look at verse 22. Then the crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their voices again, rid the earth of him. He's not fit to live because God had told him to go among the Gentiles. I wonder if there's some Messianic congregations in, in our world that have that kind of an attitude. No, we don't want to hear anything more about the Gentiles. But here's the point. Paul is saying, I am a prisoner for the Gentiles. In other words, Paul loved his ministry. He embraced his ministry. 
And he's even willing to suffer for the people to whom God had called him. A Jew who is willing to suffer as a prisoner of the Lord for the Gentile world. What a sacrifice that is in behalf of these people who are pagans, who have no knowledge of the truth. We read all about their situation. But Paul did not look at those limitations with arrogance. He looked at those limitations with compassion and grace and love. And when God told Paul, you are to be my particular witness to the Gentile world, Paul did not say, whoa, 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 can we talk about this? He didn't say, I don't know about those people. He was ready to go. And not only was he ready to go, but look at this. I thought he had already told us enough about his ministry to the Gentiles. I got it, Paul. They were people without any hope. And through you, God has brought that hope. What more can you say about them? But he still wants to say more. That's how much he loves these people. That's how much he honors and respects them. That's how thankful he is for his ministry to them. And so Paul says, he meant to pray. But as he thought about his ministry and the people to whom he was sent, he said, you know, I want to say something more about the Gentile people that God has sent me to. Even his prayer was interrupted by his thoughts of the people God sent him to bring the message of good news. And why was Paul so stirred by this? Because he said the message he was bringing to the Gentiles was a mystery. Four times, if you noticed, he mentioned it in this chapter. In verses like 2 to 6, he mentions it three times. 9 and 10, he'll mention it another time. That's not the only place in the book of Ephesians. If you look at chapter 1, I think it's around 9 and 10, he'll mention the mystery again. And if you look at chapter 5, he'll speak about marriage, and he says, but I'm speaking about the mystery of Messiah and his body of believers. In this book alone, he mentions this mystery five times. In Scripture, a mystery is not something that's difficult to unravel. My wife, Mary Lou, loves to read mysteries and mystery novels and books and so on. She says, you know, you got to read this. It's so cool. And I start reading it, and I, I can't keep the characters in order. You know, which is the guy that died now, and how did he die? And, who, and I'm all confused. And she says, no, you just have to enjoy it. Just let it flow, you know. And, but I just can't do it very well. That's not what the word mystery means in Scripture. Mystery is a revelation that God gives about something new that has not been made known before. So Paul loves his ministry because his ministry was a manifestation of something God has not done before, but he's doing now. And Paul is the initiator of this new work of God. And what is that work that God is doing? Look at verse 6. He spells it out for us. This mystery is that through the good news, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel. They are members together of one body, and they are sharers together in the promise in Messiah. Now, we might say, wait a minute, didn't the Lord say something about this in the Hebrew Scriptures? Didn't he say to Abraham, in you shall all the families of the earth be blessed? 
He did say that. And yes, God was always intending from the beginning to include the Gentiles in the good things that were coming Israel's way, or at least those who were faithful among Israel. But nowhere in the Hebrew Scriptures will you read that they are to be heirs together, members together, sharers together. In fact, Paul in the Greek here, he uses these three prepositional phrases, sin, S-Y-N, which means to come together, prefacing these words. So he's saying we are coming together as heirs. In other words, Gentiles just don't hold on to the coattails of the Jews to be heirs. We are heirs, that is Jewish believers and Gentile believers, heirs together. We are members of Messiah's body, not in some dislocated manner, but we are members of his body joined together. And we are not only inheritors of the promise God has for us, but we are inheritors of the promise together. We are joined to one another in Messiah. As heirs, Paul's point, you can see it, and we don't have time, but in Romans chapter 8, it uses the very same word. And being an heir means the fullness of the blessings of God we are due to inherit. If you have a trust or a will, you sat down with a lawyer or online somewhere, and you mentioned what you possess and where your possessions are going upon your death. You have articulated and specified who is getting what and how much of it. Paul is telling us that Jewish believers and Gentile believers together are getting all that God has in store for us. The fullness of the blessings of God. We are the beneficiaries of. Is that not just crazy to think about? I mean, if you found out one of your relatives has just died, you didn't even know they existed, and they left you in a state, and you said, oh my goodness, I can retire. Oh my goodness, I can go to graduate school and not worry about the cost. Oh my goodness, I can own that home I've always wanted. Would you not be beside yourself with joy? Paul is saying we are heirs together of the fullness of God. All the blessings God has are yours and mine. And that together, if you're a Gentile, you have it just as equally as we who are Jewish believers have it, is what Paul is saying. There are no second-class inheritors in God's family. He tells us not only are we heirs together, but we are members together. Paul's going to talk about this one body. He's already spoken about it in chapter 1, but in chapter 4, he's going to outline it. And he's going to speak very clearly. There is one body, chapter 4, verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. There aren't multiple bodies of Messiah. There are local expressions of one body of Messiah. And we are all members of it with our fellow believers around the world and across the globe. There is one body. And this multifaceted body of Messiah is made up of Jews and Gentiles joined together for God's purpose. 
And not only are we joint and together inheritors, joint and together members of one body, but we are also ones who are sharers in the promise. Notice the singular and the definite article. We are sharers in the promise of Messiah Yeshua. I think, and we don't know for sure, Paul doesn't spell it out, but I think the promise of Messiah is life eternal. He's saying we are all equal sharers in the promise of eternal life, in the promise of full redemption, in the promise of being fully reconciled to God. We are ones who are freed from the bondage of sin and slavery to it. And we are ones who together will experience the full promise of complete redemption. We are already experiencing it now to some degree. And that's why in Scripture we talk about having been sanctified. When we invited the Lord into our lives, we began to experience the promise. As we go on in our life and we're being sanctified, being made more righteous and holy and godly, we are more fully experiencing the redemptive grace of God presently. And when we stand before the Lord and he welcomes us into his kingdom, we will be completely sanctified and we will be ones who have now inherited the fullness of the promise of Messiah. That is what is our legacy and our reality. And that's why Paul said, I am the prisoner for you. I glory in it because this is what it results in. And therefore he says in verse 14, do not be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which is your glory. Now, why is God doing this? And Paul tells us in these verses, let me just show you very quickly, verse 10. He says, his intent, his purpose in doing this for you. And that's why we don't want to miss out on what God has for us. His intent, look at this in verse 10, is that now through the body of believers, the manifold wisdom of God should be revealed to rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. There's a variety of reasons why God does the things he does, but look at this one. God has given you, Jews and Gentiles together, though he's focusing on the Gentiles, God has given us all of these great blessings so that his wisdom, his manifold wisdom, that is wisdom that is past searching out, Wisdom that goes beyond our imagination so that his wisdom would be observed by the angels in heaven. We are something like actors in a real world. And the audience besides the Lord ultimately is the angelic world. Think about this. And the angels are watching your life and they're watching my life. Why? Because they want to learn the wisdom of God. (laughs) That's what he says. So that they might be told and shown the wisdom of God. Angels are not redeemed beings because angels have never sinned against God. 
Therefore, they've never needed to be redeemed. They've always been faithful to God. Michael and Gabriel never rebelled against God, so they've never needed to be redeemed by God. Now, demons have rebelled against God, and they have no hope of redemption. But the angelic world, the angel world of the angels, they have never experienced redemption. So when they see you and I, they say, now this is confusing. They say, I don't get this one. Because either you're faithful and things are good, or you're not faithful and things are bad. But I don't know about this sinful thing being redeemed. I don't get how it is that people who violated the very character and nature of God are restored to him. I don't get how it is that God would come up with such a plan as that and that his son would come and give his life. I got to see that again. And keep in mind, the angels have been around since the beginning of the creation of the world. They've observed everything from Adam to the coming of Messiah to us today in the 21st century, and they're still trying to figure out the manifold wisdom of God. And how often do we hear one another say, hey, I got this. I know this. This is what this means. <laughs> you know. To some degree, yes, we could be clear. But the wisdom of God, it's past finding out. And one of the things Paul says the angels look at is how we suffer. Look how Paul is suffering. And his suffering is a means to a greater end. It is a means by which the manifold wisdom of God can be seen. You know, when individuals sin, when Adam and Eve sinned, God could have said they sin, they're done, they're toast. If I was God, that might have been my attitude. Hey, you should have done better next time. And that would have been the end of it. God, if he had done that, would have been righteous to have done it. If God had done that, he would not have violated anyone because they had sinned and God had said, the day that you eat of the fruit of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil, that day dying you shall die. But that wasn't God's plan. God knew from the beginning what Adam and Eve were going to do. But what God wanted to demonstrate, that there were people out there that would love him so much that despite the suffering they go through, they will be faithful to me. The wisdom of God in demonstrating that there are people who experience the grace of God that no amount of suffering could ever detract them from. Job is a character in point. Do what you will to him, he will not deny me. And Job never did. And who has suffered like him? Perhaps there are some. I don't really know. But he suffered greatly. But what was his word? That he knew God was in charge of his life. Though he slay me, yet will I praise him. That is confusing to angels and to you and I. But the manifold wisdom of God is seen. And that his love is so great, no amount of suffering can deter us from it. That's what Paul is saying. Do not be discouraged by my condition. Don't worry about what I have struggled with. It is a symbol of the glory of God 
that has been poured out upon you. Paul will say, if we suffer with him, we will reign with him. But this mystery that Paul is permitted and privileged to proclaim is the mystery that he just is so excited about, joyful in, proud to be a part of, grateful to have, is to be a voice to the Gentile world that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has made a way for you to have eternal life. It was true for the Jews, and he certainly proclaims that message as he goes from synagogue to synagogue. But Paul knew his focus was the Gentile peoples of the world. For me, the takeaway is whatever ministry God has placed you in, it's God's ministry for you. And to the same degree that Paul just rejoiced in it, as Paul rejoiced in his condition and saw that God would use him despite it and man- despite that and manifest his wisdom through him and his circumstances, so you and I need to see that we, with the gifts, talents, abilities, and circumstances we face, God is manifesting his wisdom through you and your experiences and your service to the angelic world and to the world around us. This is the calling that Paul had, and in point of fact, is the calling we all have. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for Paul. What a wonderful servant of yours he has been, and he continues to serve you as his words are proclaimed daily and read daily and sought and to be understood daily. And we are grateful for his faithfulness to you and the grace that you manifested in his life. Lord, we too have a calling in ministry. You've given us gifts and Paul's going to share that with us in chapter four. You've given gifts to us to serve you and in serving you to make your manifold wisdom known to others. Our calling is to the Jewish people in the greater Los Angeles area. Father, may we rejoice in our calling in ministry as much as Paul rejoiced in his. May we sacrifice like Paul did for the Gentile peoples he sought to reach. In the same way, may we too sacrifice so as to reach the Jewish people you've called us to reach. Father, may we learn from Paul and his example of what it truly means to be a servant of yours. And this, Lord, we can only do by your grace, so we pray that you might pour it out upon us and that your spirit would energize us that we might do this for your honor and for your glory. Lord, may we make good choices with whatever circumstances we find ourselves in that the manifold wisdom of God would be seen 
in and through us as well. Lord, that is our desire. That you would be seen. That we would shine our lights before others. That they might see these good works. And that you, Lord, would be the one glorified who is in heaven. We give you all honor, praise, and glory. We pray in Messiah's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to him. Do remember us in your prayers. And if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L.org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.